Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. Last fall, I sat down with a fellow former hedge fund of funds professional, Kay He, who left the business a few years ago and has developed a fascinating media platform around introspection, self-awareness, and self-development. Certainly a set of characteristics we don't normally associate with folks in the asset management business. Kay interviewed me about my career path and some lessons I've learned about people, business, and life along the way. With his permission, I'm sharing this conversation to allow you to learn more about the perspective that I bring to the conversations on Capital Allocators. If you like the subject matter, I'd encourage you to check out Kay's podcast. 
entitled Rad Awakenings. It's available on iTunes or at his website, radreads.co. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. And hang on till the end. I asked some special guests to ask me the closing questions. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Today's guest is Ted Sides. How's it going, man? It's going great. Thanks for thanks for having me here. It's fun to be on the other side of the mic. This is bringing back some memories about my old career, so we're going to have fun on this one. Plus, it's always fun to have another podcaster because as we're going through the pr- preparations, everyone knows what's going on. So... Ted, I would love to start. You worked for one of the legends of investing, David Swenson, at the Yale Endowment. I did. Tell us a little bit about kind of how you got into that and what it was like. Yeah, it was my first job out of college. I graduated in 1992, and I was interested in stocks. I'm not sure I knew what a stock was, but I had taken a class with David. He used to teach a big survey class, and then he also did some smaller seminars. I just took the big survey class. He had mentioned that they hire one person a year, and I I interviewed, and it was a time when Wall Street wasn't hiring that much. It was sort of coming out of a recession, and that was the job I got, and I took it. And that was how it started. I, I thought I'd stay for two or three years and then go to business school, which was an idea in my head. There wasn't a plan for that. And I ended up staying for five because I had such a great experience there. And you mentioned you didn't know a ton about stocks. Not at all. How'd you get the job? Well, I think back then is a lot different than now when people want to get into the financial markets. There's so much more information. People know so much more. I never would have been able to compete with what I knew then with someone coming out of college today. I mean, it's extraordinary how much people know. But I was just interested and being interested. And I had a summer job experience that just did nothing more than demonstrate some interest, allowed me to get in the door. And and I think a lot of the hiring there was based on people. I was a little bit skeptical of Wall Street. I think I was just nervous about what it would mean to work day and night. And I knew people who were in like investment banking programs, but I didn't know anyone who was out of them. So now when I talk to friends, they say, oh, it it was hell for two years, but what a great experience. I only knew people who were saying, oh, it's hell. And I thought hell wasn't a great place to be. So this felt different and, you know, had an offer and I I didn't know a whole lot. So I went and took it. I liked the people and that was sort of what I knew to judge by. I did know at the time I wanted to leave New Haven and I didn't do that. And I figured I should do something with the training program and I didn't have that either. So my two criteria, I failed on both, but it ended up working out just fine. Where we overlapped was in the industry was at Protégé. Yeah. Tell us a, a little bit about, you know, so you're at, you're at the Yale Endowment for five years. You went to business school after? Yeah, I left to go to business school. And then kind of start us back up at around the, the start of the Protégé days. Yeah. So that was a few years after business school. I had tried a few direct investment jobs and didn't find anything that resonated. Maybe it was people, maybe it was the role, hard to know. And so I decided to go back into the kind of work I was doing at Yale and had an offer to go back to Yale at the time and didn't, ended up in a sort of backing into an entrepreneurial situation, which all of a sudden everyone wanted to talk to me because in between the time I left Yale and then Dave Swenson became famous. He wrote a book that became a bestseller in the industry. And all of a sudden, this obscure no-name background I had was of value. And I felt like, oh, I had an opportunity to back into being involved in a business. And so a lot of the work was the same. It really, for me, it was betting on people in, an, in investing I find really interesting. So it was, it was in an area that I found of interest. But it was probably the most people or if you could combine people orientation and kind of 
intellectual curiosity in investing, there's, there might not be a better seat than that one. And I don't think I knew that when I was at Yale, but I kind of, after stumbling a little bit, Right after business school, I kind of put some of those pieces together and said, wow, this is something that really fits for me. And I, I could share a similar experience for our listeners. I was in the fund of funds industry. So it's, there's fund of funds and then there, there's hedge funds and, and fund of funds, you're making decisions about other investors. So I'd say you're, you're one degree removed from the end product of touching a stock or touching a bond or, or a security. How did you think about the difference between being kind of at the front lines, investing, you know, directly versus picking other investors? It's the right question. It's a question everyone in, in that seat of picking people and managers thinks about. When I left Yale, that's what I thought I wanted to do. So I thought I wanted to be involved in the stock markets, picking stocks. I didn't know how to do that. And I don't know that business school really trains you for it either. It tends to be an apprenticeship business. And in that area, I just didn't work my way into finding great mentors. So I had this struggle, and it's almost an incredibly humbling struggle, as you know, where I knew people who were among the best in the world in this field, and I knew I wasn't one of them. Right? I didn't have the training. And, and at the same time, I had training from the person who's now seen as the best in the world in this certain style of investing. So I said, well, I guess I should just stick to that. But you do have this incredible humility being in that seat that you're not really in the action. You're kind of one step removed. And those are the guys that make the big bucks. You know, you can do fine, but not the people that are picking the managers. And if I can pick the managers well, and I understand almost like at a 2,000 foot level, how they do this, sometimes better than some of them, shouldn't I be able to do what they do yep. too? So you definitely hold that as a question in that field throughout. And sometimes today I say, wow, I wonder what would have happened. It's a little past due for me, but to start over. But what would have happened if I had had a different mentor or a different path? You learn try, to try not to look back, but we all do it. Yeah. And I, I would say maybe to be more blunt about it, speaking from my perspective, when you were the hedge fund manager, that's when you would make FU money. <laughs> and when you were the second derivative, like you said, you would do extremely well. You could do extremely well. You have done extremely well. But there was always that difference. And I know personally that kind of messed with me because I was like, I could be in the room with that. With I'm going to say guys because they were mostly guys. I could be in the room with those guys. But a part of me knew that I couldn't because... I had a tremendous respect for what they did. But I think for me, the big difference was that I am not a quick on your feet thinker. Like a, I'm not a good poker player. I'm the kind of person that takes a problem. Hey, we should play poker together. <laughs> we race to the bottom. <laughs> I, I, I like to take a problem, go into a room and sleep on it, like mull it over and come back with a decision. Look, lots of investing is done that way as well. But the kind of the quick on your feet thinking was was not it. But really, for me, it came down to greed and ego. Like I wanted to know that I was in that I could be in that conversation. And I kind of, you know, for a long time, I was always plotting my exit 
from that because like I, I was like I, I could find a way yeah. to make that leap, but at the same time I didn't have the entrepreneurial position that you had. So tell us a bit about Protege, how you got involved and, and your role there. Yeah, so I, you know I say I backed into an entrepreneurial situation, and that's sort of right. I knew a guy who's well known in the industry, a guy named Dan Stern, who had once helped manage the money for the Ziff Publishing family, and he initially was going to wanted to create a different division of his company. And he put me together with a guy that he knew to do that. And so I joined, I thought that was going to be really exciting. And it turned out the two of them, and they were, I was going to be the sort of number two guy in this division. The two of them hadn't actually worked out the terms of the agreement. So after some period of time, very amicably, I had written this business plan for what we would do. We would have conversations about it. It, it. Maybe it was six months or something like that. And then we just decided to spin it out, and that became Protege. And so it was a, a business, as you said, that invests in hedge funds and hedge fund managers. And it also had a piece of it that would take some money and invest in new funds, almost like venture capital or help. We would put the money into the new fund. And so that was the business. It was great. We started the fund in 02. Oh, two. Okay, so we entered the industry at the. Yep. I was oh three, and it and it was great. You know, up all the way through yeah. two thousand eight. In fact, two thousand eight, we did we lost money, but not nearly as much as other people. And I thought, wow, now we've really shown that we're great. But of course, our clients had different issues, and so the business was okay. And 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 I stayed until two thousand fifteen. Not from the investing perspective per se, but in terms of you know, being a gauge of individuals, what were what were some of the attributes that you are always, you know, trying to unpack about individuals? Well, it's a funny success in this particular business, as you know, is is not doesn't necessarily have the same criteria that we might talk about of a broader view of success in life. So I would start with things like oftentimes the person that I would want to back might not be someone I would ever want to work for because they were so passionate and to the point of obsessed with whatever they were doing in the investment markets that you knew they were focused on making money for you. But it doesn't necessarily mean they had the most balanced life. It was just a life they were very happy with. So there, there is something about work ethic. I do think ultimately, as in many, many fields, and it's certainly true, it's hard to encapsulate what character means. But so when people think about hedge funds, they think about infinite dollars and guys who are billionaires and grow, and there there are some of those. Most of the funds that do best by their investors aren't necessarily the ones that grow to be the biggest. They're the ones who care most about performance, not business growth. And you could argue that you know these are their own entrepreneurs and businessmen. And if they don't want to grow to the sky, there's like something wrong with them. Like, but it's just a question of like, what's the difference between a profession and a business? So some of them view as we, I want to be the best doctor I can. It doesn't mean I have the most patients. It just means I want to be the very, very best with the patients I have. And those were the ones that you try to find. Now that's hard when you're balancing it with your own business and you're trying to have growth in your business. And so, for example, you might find one of those, and they might choose to stay really, really small. And that's great if you're really, really small. But then if you get bigger, they're not that important for your results. And so there's this balancing act that you have to go through of sort of matching where you are 
with your business with with the managers you pick. So that's there is something about character doing right by their partners as opposed to sort of doing right by themselves. And then, you know, these are organizations. And there are a lot of people that have done really well as money managers that are not good. Most are not good managers of people, but some of them sort of get that right. When you looked at these teams, one one question for you is, did you ever consider, or, or I'm sure you did, Did you, how did you look at their intrins, intrinsic motivation versus their extrinsic motivation? So you always try to figure out both. And I think the more time you spend with one of these people, you, and, and, and in, in as many different contexts. So a lot of the meetings are across the desk in an office, but you got to try to get outside the office. And be, doing this in Manhattan is, in some ways is harder than doing it like in New Haven, Connecticut, because if someone visits you in New Haven, Connecticut, they don't have a lot of other meetings that day. So they're there. You meet in the office. You go out to lunch. Maybe you play tennis, and you start to see people in different contexts. It's a little harder to do that, ironically, when you're in you know, midtown Manhattan. So I think the most important thing to try to figure out is the intrinsic motivation. The people who are good at this actually aren't doing it because of the money. But that's hard because the performance is measured by money. So you don't know, right? That You don't get to the point where I say, I have the answer. This yeah. person's – but, I mean, yeah, after you meet a few thousand people, you can start to sense at least good ones from bad ones. And then the other thing, as you know – which most people probably don't. Most people don't know listening to this is that the the best guys in the world in this business are right about 55% of the time. Barely over, like you flip a coin, you're 50-50, barely better than that. And those are the guys who eventually become billionaires. I mean, it's sort of extraordinary that even if you do all the homework and you think you make these judgments, you just, you really don't know. You you kind of stole the next question out of my out of my mouth. So two thousand two to two thousand eight, you and I were in the same industry. You're you're a little bit older than me, and we are witnessing one of the most spectacular wealth creation environments in the financial services that that I'm aware of. How do you reconcile this tremendous amount of wealth creation via performance with the statement that you just made? You're looking at fifty-five, you know, fifty-five percent chance of being right or wrong. <laughs> there's so many, there's so <laughs> many ways we could take this. So that that truth about fifty-five percent right or wrong is something you know I had known and lived with for ten years prior to that. So that's just a fact and a truism of investing. It doesn't mean investing doesn't work. It's just that's how it works. You know, I think that there are these aphorisms in investing that when you're doing well, you're not as smart as you think you are. And when you're doing badly, you're not as dumb as you think you are. And, you know, I can look back at that time and 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 think, you know, I really believed what we were doing. I thought we were great at it. And the results were showing that. Then you go through harder periods. And in our business, it wasn't 2008 and 2009. It was more like 2011 and afterwards for a variety of sort of specific reasons. And then you look back and say, wow, like, on the one hand, we were really good. We were beating the industry. We were growing. We were getting recognized because that was true. And then you go through a period of time where you're not really beating the industry and it doesn't feel like you've done anything differently. And, and, and then I could look back and say, 
boy, I, I really did think we were great then. And I really did think we weren't as great afterwards. But how much of that was truth and how much of that was just emotion? Yeah. I, I'm not sure. In those you know, five to 10 years, you saw people get spectacularly wealthy. And presumably you had some a tr- tremendous amount of financial success in that, that period. I had strong financial, personal success in that, in that period. But what did you learn about, let's just say, what did you learn about greed yeah. in that period? So one of the, there's a, uh, a senior guy in the industry named Charlie Ellis, who's a brilliant guy and writer. And I knew him from my early days in the business. And he had said something to me once that always stuck with me. And I think is the best answer I can give to the question. And he framed it as money makes people more so. So the notion is, if you're a greedy person and you have more money, you're going to be more greedy. If you are a kind person and you have more money, you are going to express kindness in even better ways. And I saw that across the spectrum. And and it shows, it doesn't show up quickly, but you do see it over time. I hope and I think in that period of time where I was, you know, making a little bit more money than I needed, that I was on the, I, I'm, I shouldn't say, I'm not even going to say that. I, I'm I'm happy with when I had a nice period of income coming in. I'll look back and feel very good about how I reacted to that. Like anyone else, and I mean anyone else. I had a conversation just the other day with a very successful hedge fund manager that's made lots and lots and lots of money that's having, you know, similar kind of some frustrations and challenges that I have, which is people gradually work their way into spending. And the key to wealth is not how much money you make. It's how much money you spend. And that's something I wish I knew a long time ago. This would blow my mind about some of these these hedge fund managers where they would have you know, sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars and they would get a check back from from a, din- a dinner that wasn't even on the, the personal card. And they would look through it and say, I didn't order that. Yeah. Or there was one hedge fund manager that would take all of the points for the firm to their own pocket. I don't think there's just one who did that, <laughs> by the way. And I guess that's, that is the more so... That is the more so. Correct. So the the gasoline on that, and, and I know I know for me, I call it the three E's that that grew up because I, I grew up very modestly, and you know I, I did very well in the industry, well beyond what I ever thought I would do, but by no means like you know these guys you read about. But I saw it. I called the three E's. It was ego, envy, and entitlement, and. Uh, actually, before I talk, I, I see you reacting. So uh, what's on your mind when I say that? Uh, the thing that popped into my head is what a New York hedge fund centric view of the world, which is true. You know, there is a lot of the ecosystem of this industry that's in the tri-state area. I do think that gets dispersed regionally to some extent. Meaning? Meaning there are some folks I've known in the business in San Francisco Oh yeah, who don't seem as caught up in uh, some of that than, you know, it happens in New York. Yeah. Certainly not if you go to Asia. London, not sure. Yeah. You know, I don't know as much, certainly currently, about that community. So it's, I think you're right. And it's it's not just hedge funds, right? I, I happen to live in, in a part of Greenwich, Connecticut, 
And I I hated this stereotype. I still do. And there are some people I've met that probably fit the stereotype. Most don't. And it's a diverse town in some ways. But you still do see if the people around you go on a certain type of vacation, it's kind of like, oh, well, I'd like to go with my friends. So it's a strange dynamic. I don't think that's envy or ego, but and I'm not sure it's entitlement either, but there is this sort of the people you're around gravitate in a certain way. And if you're around people with money, they spend it in a certain way. But but that's different. You know, the ego, sure, envy is a big deal. Entitlement, I that seems to me is more case by case. I mean, some of the most successful people in, in this field have come from very little and endured some type of hardship in their lives and are probably the antithesis of entitlement. Now, once they make it, you know, anytime someone – you think about professional athletes who have a lot of money. They have entourages. Yeah. And people are telling them they're great all the time. We have a president who doesn't need other people to tell him how great he is. But when you're surrounded by people who are creating favor to you, and I think that can happen with, you know, very successful hedge fund managers. Yeah, you start to you start to delegate a lot of things. You start to have every you know whim taken care of for you. And, yeah, that can skew people in that direction as well. I think with me, the entitlement, I started to feel like I was owed. And so as I saw, you know, kind of my income trajectory, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm actually worth this amount. And I bring that up. One thing that I'm, that I'm very proud of is that, you know, despite my income increasing, you know, a lot over a 15 year period, my spending grew at a very, as a much, much lower rate. Actually, I'll bring this up now. Two other things, not to be self promotional. One was that when I entered the, the fund of funds industry in 2003, I said to myself, and it wasn't because I was smart, I said, I don't think this industry is going to be around in 10 years. And it was mostly a view on middlemen. And it was mostly, I just, I couldn't understand how people would still make money after all of the fees. And so actually, ironically, me doing this podcast is kind of, I was always had one foot out. I was like, the, the, the ship's going to, the ship's going to sink. The ship's going to sink. Like, what's my next thing? What's my next thing? And so that, that I never had the complacency, mostly because I thought that the industry was going, going to go away. But I want to flip it because there is a group of people that probably some somewhere between 2006, 2007, my demographic, they were in their kind of early 30s or so, and they made spectacular amounts of money in 2007, let's just say. And if you fast forward from 2007 to 2017, I'd say... 80% of them are, are unsatisfied with their current situation. 95% of them have never made as much money as they made in 2007, but by any standard, still extremely well, and they're extremely unhappy. And there's just something, I don't know if you have any ref reflection on hitting a high water mark at some point in your life with status or recognition and never seeing it again or, or the, the possibility of never seeing it again. Well, I feel like I've been in that position as well. The, the business we had, at least within the industry, was very well regarded. You know, I ended up, as you know, making a 
sort of a public bet with Warren Buffett that I, I didn't realize how public <laughs> it would be. So I, I've thought I've had to think a lot about it. Now, some of it is sort of how tied is someone's self worth to the money they're making. Yeah. And, you know, I think fortunately for me, it wasn't the case. It, for me, it was more a dollars and cents issue. And we didn't, you know, my kids are older than your kids. So it's not so much that we got sort of crazy and spent a lot. It was more that the kids get more expensive yeah. as they get older. And so the expenses do creep up and then, and then you know, things change. I, I'm not from that demographic in some sense. You know, I'm late 40s and I do have a lot of friends that have been in and around the industry and are doing something different. But I I haven't, at least in the people I know, there are people making changes. And, and when you're in the midst of a change, it is stressful and difficult. Yeah. And I think people can lose sight of lots of things. I mean, self-esteem goes down and people react to that in a lot of different ways. And the world's changed. So it's not just that financial markets – and the ones that strike me as unhappy are the ones that never really enjoyed the work anyway. So if it was just about the money and then you feel stuck and you feel like you're never going to make the money again. So I'll give you a framework for that that, uh, on a wonderful speech I heard probably about a year ago. People in this business and other fields as well tend to pursue success. And and success can mean a lot of things. But for this framework, let's just think of success as making money. And so they pursue that incredibly hard in their career. They're very driven. They have a, a goal. They're seeking. And then you get to a point in time where they either achieve that success to the degree they want to or they don't. If they achieve that success, they then look for fulfillment. And sometimes they don't know how to find it. But if they don't ch- achieve that success, now you haven't achieved what you thought you are going to and you're still looking for fulfillment. So now the, compare that to people who pursue their lives from the beginning pursuing fulfillment. And so the most, the best example of that are artists. So in, in any form. So think about a Broadway actor or singer. They never really expect to make a certain amount of money and then can do whatever they want. They're doing what they want. And what you find is that they end up being more flexible. They are, they are moving forward, flexible in their lives. They're moving forward based on passion and flow. And not based on, you know, riches or whatever it is. So you can get to. So it's the destination to get to the next destination. And I've been stuck in that too. I mean, I, I didn't pursue what I did exclusively to make money. I, I really felt like I needed to be enjoying what I was doing. And then, wouldn't it be great if I made money? But when the world changed for the role that we had, it's a little bit of a struggle to say, "Oh, what do I want to do?" Yeah. I kind of want to do what I was doing when it was fun, and that's where the people get stuck, right? When you could make money and work with people you liked and it was really interesting and it wasn't crazy hours. You could have a full – boy, that's a pretty good place to be. So you, you were there. You had that. Can you get it again? Hard. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. 
and one because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. What do you think of this fulfillment question? Because one... You know, you're you're nine years older than me. We had these stretches in our career that were financially lucrative, and and the the one question I get mo- mostly from men is, like, I'm just going to sacrifice everything for eight, ten, twelve, fifteen years to get that pot, to get that credibility, and then I'll X, then I'll you know be a more present parent then i'll be i'll pursue my hobbies then i'll read more fiction then i'll travel do you have thoughts on that i do look i can't speak i I know exactly what you're talking about i know the kind of people you're talking about but i can't speak to that because it's not me i viewed it as i never wanted to sacrifice everything and the one thing i'll tell you as i've in, in in these last nine years so you will learn over the next nine years is that The place where I started in my career in terms of what the people around me believed about balance and family and that work wasn't everything. I think at the beginning of my career, I wasn't asked to work crazy hours, but but I would have done it. I was gung-ho, but I wasn't asked to. As time has gone on, I've gone more and more in that direction. But it's hard because the last two years, much of the time, I haven't been fully engaged. I joined some advisory boards of friends. I did start the podcast. I wrote a book. But I actually wanted to be more engaged. I didn't necessarily want to be 100% engaged for most of the time. And it wasn't as easy as I thought it was going to be to find the right fit because I didn't want to be working 110% of the time. I wanted to be working like full on but with some flexibility because after spending much, much more time with my kids than I have, that is fulfillment and happiness. And it doesn't have to be, oh, the work I'm doing every minute of every day brings me that fulfillment. Wouldn't that be great? Sure. But I can't think of many days in my 14 or 15 years of protege, in my five years at Yale, I, I, I can think of like two days that I had a hard time getting out of bed because I was annoyed with something. I just loved what I did. Yeah. And it wasn't, it's not peaches and roses, right? You have tough times, but yeah. it just wasn't hard. Now, when I got to a point, man, it was a year and a half ago or something, where I actually wasn't getting up for anything. I And people would say, that's great. You had all this time, and I had all kinds of other stuff going on in my life. But I actually had a harder time getting at it. Like, I want, so, so then I think about, okay, for me to be happy, I need to be engaged. Yeah. I need to be working productively towards something. And of course, you go through any period of transition, you say, oh, let me throw everything up. Not all of us can go from the financial world to the Rad Reads world. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very special thing. And I I thought about those types. Could I go do something completely different? And it's hard because you have obligations, family, you have financial obligations, the public perception of what my 
personal balance sheet might be like is not what it really is, which is a really, at times, is a very difficult thing personally. When you say, wouldn't it be nice if I just had as much money as everyone else seems to think I have? Of course. Lottery tickets haven't paid off yet, but you know, every now and then. Podcast going to take off. Podcast. Oh, yeah. It's definitely going to be podcast sponsorship (laughs) revenue. That's the path to, to billions. So, but I believe deeply in the notion of being of service to other people. And I think that sometimes is very hard day to day when you're in the financial markets. And even like my podcast in a funny way, which is a podcast about investing, I didn't have a particular, it was one of the first things I've done in my life where I didn't have a particular goal in mind. I just said, well, I know some interesting people. I haven't really had a chance to connect with them in a little while. Why don't I go record the conversation? And because it's subject matter that I know well, and they are deeply in it, and there are some of these people are people that uh, many that are interested in investing just don't have access to, people seem to love it. Wouldn't it be great if that could be a thing? Well, yeah, maybe it will, maybe it won't, because there is also a truth about we all need to make a certain amount of money to support food, shelter, and clothing, and hobbies, and whatever else. Do you think if those lottery tickets paid off yesterday, do you find that same passion in the markets, or would you peel off another corner of your, you know, the the, the rad reads type activities? Yeah. How do you think about it? So I have thought about it from time to time, because- there were a lot of things that could have happened differently in the seat that I was in that might have afforded me a lot of long-term financial flexibility. So I would say a couple of things. The first is I just think that I have, like many do, concerns about money. I'd like to think that some of those would have gone away if I had said, oh, I've got money. This is how much I spend. I don't need to spend more than this. And this is going to last me a really long time. That's the first thing. Like, I just think I would sleep a little bit better. In the past, I would have said, well, I'll just do my own thing. And that's probably what I would have done. Hang my own shingle, have some people I like around me and see what happens. I'm not so sure today because unless that activity is engaging enough, I now know I wouldn't be all that happy. So how would I fill that extra time? I don't know. Like I've dreamt about being a teacher and that's something I've talked to people about at times, but it's harder to pursue that when you say, well, there's more dollars going out than are coming in. I have to, let me get the math to work first and then. You'd be a remarkable teacher. I'm going to. Oh, it's kind. Thank you. I, you know, look, I I am having a conversation about it now. I I don't know if it's a job potential or a, you know, something that maybe at some point I could do on the side, but that's one of the things that always resonated for me. Like, I'm a middle child. I've never minded being on stage. And and certainly like in, in our industry work, I've just spoke at conferences and things like that. And I just enjoy it. Yeah. I wanted to share this conversation that I had with my coach. And we talk a lot about this, this fear of money. This comes up a lot on the podcast. And he really pushes me on it a lot. And the word that, I, that kept coming up was survival. And, you know, I have, I make a little bit of income, but I'm still, I'm eating through my savings to do this. And he said, he's like, well, what is that fear? You know, and, and we were talking about the fear and the, the way you tense up when something triggers something. And I said, the, the, the thing that comes to mind is survival. And he, what he said is, he's like, okay, you're going to survive. He's like, what does survival mean to you? And it's like, well, a roof over my, t- over roof over my head and like putting food. And he's like, you're going to survive. He said, you could get a house in upstate like New Hampshire, send your kids to public school, be a teacher, and you you will survive. He's like, I might even argue you'd be even happier than you are today. 
And he said, but that fear, he's like, you're, you're using this money fear and you're pitting survival on it. Like there's dissonance in your head. It's, it's not survival. It is maybe consider living a good life. He's like, he's like, and that's a very valid objective to live a good life. He's like, but he's, he urged me, I would encourage you to not confuse survival and living a good life because they bring together too many differing emotions and they're, they're almost separate problems. So I say that with no question, but I don't know if you have a reflection of that. I do and I don't. I, I, it's a question of what resonates for each person. So like that survival instinct, which, which I can mirror, is not the same fear that I have. I think I know a lot about where I get blocked as it relates to me, but I don't know all of it. Yeah. And I've been trying to for a yeah. long, <laughs> long time. But, you know, that, that got put on hold for a long time, not in a conscious way, but I went through a period of 12 years where there was no chance that the dollars going out were going to be more than the dollars coming in. I got married and divorced in that, you know, 10, 10 year period of time where that, that money just wasn't an issue. And that felt good to me because I knew I have issues with money like other people. And I said, well, this is great. Like I don't have to worry about this. And that felt like a good life. And the harder part about it is that there are experiences you can have and interesting people that you can meet that you might not have met otherwise you know, for me, for example, I got involved with a, a nonprofit called Citizen Schools in New York. It's a national nonprofit that works with public middle schools to do extended learning time and bring some very needed education. They bring in outside. They have an apprenticeship program where you or I could go and teach something we're passionate about. It's an amazing organization. And a friend of mine from school is now the president of the national organization. They were coming to New York. She asked me to join the board. I met some people on that board who are awesome and I'm still very friendly with. And I wouldn't have had the opportunity to do so if I hadn't been in a great position to be able to donate a bunch of money. And so there are times where you see the benefits of it. And is it, for me, that wasn't about the money. It was about supporting a very close friend of mine, an organization she was passionate about and something I was really excited and interested in. And as a fringe benefit, I got to meet some cool people. But I might push you on that because if you were to do that on a much smaller scale, where it's like a local community service organization at the local, you know, without the fancy galas, you, you may have had the same sense of satisfaction. It just wouldn't have been amplified in, in that in the way of like, the, the hedge fund bourgeoisie. Another question for you. The, the, these, are, these are the fun topics. How do you stop caring what other people's perception of oh, you? I suck at it. <laughs> so I, I definitely, as you get more conscious and aware of yourself over the years, it can be a lot easier to not care as much about what other people say. But there's a big difference between caring when you have a chance to sit back and reacting. And over the last bunch of years, one of the things I've noticed for me and around me is how incredibly influenced we are by something that someone says. So it doesn't mean it's necessarily what do they think about you? Do I care what they think about me? But, you know, one of my kids is having a bad day and I'm not in as good of a mood. Somebody says something to you about someone else and you 
slightly change your perception of that other person unless you're really careful. And and there's no way out of that. Yeah. Like this is just how, I guess, how human minds work. So I've thought more about that and like, wow, like how much am I swayed in what I'm thinking by what small things other people say are? And like some people, I can joke around about Donald Trump, it won't matter as much to Donald Trump what other people say because he has a certain personality yeah. that's very strong-willed and he believes what he believes. I'm someone that's a little more malleable that way. Yeah. And I'm awfully good at seeing both sides of an argument. And sometimes I have conviction on one side or the other. And other times I just don't – I'm like, well, that sounds well, that sounds pretty good too. Uh, politics is a great example. Like I can listen to subjects in politics and people are so passionate about both sides. Yeah. And I can often say, oh, yeah, I, I see the merits of both of those. Yeah. And it takes me a while to say, what do, what do I really think? Yeah. And then there are other issues in politics that – feel like so obvious to me you know i'm a pro-choice guy like i i don't understand pro-life other people do but i don't understand their arguments yeah in this period of reinvention and and transformation what's been the most underrated attribute about yourself that that you've discovered uh boy resilience you know I, i i don't we don't need to go through it all but i i got a pile of crap thrown at me at the same time and then it happened again a year and a half later different pile and everything you could imagine. Health issues, fortunately, not for me, but family, uh, divorce, a job change, children problems, everything you could imagine getting thrown out. And I didn't collapse. And when I talked to my close friends about, like, what's going on, they were like, I can't believe you're still standing up, right? Some, some big stuff. And so I never gave myself credit for being a resilient person. And I should have because my mother – is unbelievably resilient. Like she's someone that could get unbelievably upset about something and two seconds later be incredibly present. And so, you know, that's that's one, but it is. Life throws people curveballs. And if they're in it and trying to live and not die, boy, it, it can be tough. Yeah. Do you recall when that resilience was tested prior phases in your life? Yeah, I had a big one. I had a big one when I was sort of coming out of business school. Because I was on a track, meaning, you know, I went to the right school. I happened to get this great job at the Yale Investments Office, but it was the only job I had at the time. And then I went to business school. And for the first time in my life, people were telling me, what do you want to do? And I didn't know what I was supposed to do, right? There, there hadn't, I wasn't necessarily brought up to feel like the world is your oyster and follow your passion. It was more about, you know, survival, yeah. Not explicitly, but implicitly, you know, very middle-class family. And so I had a really hard time right as I was coming out of business. And the world should have been my oyster. I'm a young guy coming out of Harvard Business School, but I was depressed and I didn't know what to do. And importantly for me, I didn't know to turn to other people. I assumed I had to figure it all out on my own. And you, that's one of the biggest lessons I've learned and you know, something I talked about on the first podcast interview, not mine, with, with Patrick O'Shaughnessy. I got involved with an organization called the Hero's Journey Foundation, which a brilliant and wonderful man named Michael Mervosh in Pittsburgh recreates the experience of the Joseph Campbell Hero's Journey for people in the mountains in West Virginia. And it's just extraordinary. But one of the key like first lessons I learned, and I went for the first time probably four years ago, was you can't do it alone. 
And I think then I started thinking about aspects of my life. When I work out, if I go to a group class, I always work out like harder and do stuff I didn't think I could do. Even if the people aren't like in the same, it's just, oh, we're doing these circuits. Here's what you're, here's the prescribed thing. If I go and do it myself, I won't work out as hard as when I'm with the group. And it's especially true in those difficult points in time in your life. It's easy when things slow down, which they don't often, but you know, right? Things can get slow when you're making these changes to just retreat. And so I saw that at that early point in time in my life, that's what I did. I retreated and it made it really hard. And this time around over the last couple of years, when things got hard again, I tried as hard as I could to make sure I was reaching out. Yeah. I feel a part of what you just said because I was very much raised on this belief of self-sufficiency. It's like, don't burden other other people with your problems. And I think I went through a phase in my hedge fund journey, I think where the entitlement part came in, where I don't think I did it consciously, but I was definitely positioning myself socially to be in the right circles of people versus like the genuine friends and people that cared about me. And so I I definitely felt that. I think now, if anything, it's been like a full reversal where it's like this anonymous audience gets to hear, uh, gets to to support me really. So so I I can definitely relate to, to what you're saying. Different gear. You know, your experience in the financial services, your professional experience, you spend more and more time in digital land, you know, doing a podcast, but hanging out with people like Patrick O'Shaughnessy and and Brent and Brent Bishore and, and all those folks. And then you have teenage kids. What do you think higher education and their first job looks like from your vantage Pre, point? Pre-teenage kids. Pre-teenage not, not for kids. long. Okay. Yeah. Some of two minds. On the one hand, you see the power of what's happening in digital and and with kids. You know, the way they consume media is so different from how I did. My eight-year-old would rather watch repeat videos of things he finds on YouTube yeah. than watch television. And the notion of like commercials and it's just anathema to them. So you could see the possibility of education changing. On the other hand, there's two incredibly powerful forces that will never change. One is inertia. We have an educational system. It works in a certain way. It is undeniable for me that having been fortunate to attend the schools I did created a signaling effect in the eyes of employers, in the eyes of potential clients or whatever it was to build a business that they might be more likely to pick you than the next person because there is a signaling effect of having gone to a certain school. The other part of it is socialization, right? And that's what you think about as a parent. Wow, when these kids just want to play video games all day. Not only that, they're socializing by playing interactive online video games with their friends. Not only can they do it at their friend's house, but they'll have a play date and do it next to each other. And so there's so much. I'll tell you a great story just to that effect. My eight-year-old's best friend's father, who's a close friend of mine, just told me this the other day. These guys spend so much time together, it's unbelievable. And my son had dropped off a Clash of Clans group. I barely know what that is. And his son was, was like, well, why did Eric drop off the group? And he said, I don't know. Why don't you call him? And his son said, I can't do that. <laughs> These kids would spend an incredible amount of wow. time together. He was nervous to pick up the phone and call his best friend. Totally different. I remember spending like an hour a night on the phone with my friends. So you think as a parent, like, what is that? What will that mean? And, and will these kids be social? Like, and we don't know. Yeah. 
it's an, it's a social experiment that's just happened by virtue of you know mass bandwidth and everything else. Do you think in the second component of that, the inertia and the signaling, do you see those? You went to Yale and Harvard. You have the the pinnacle of the degrees. Do you think that that signaling has started to fade or will fade in our lifetimes? Well, I you know I don't know. I do think that whenever there's an industry where all of the people all of a sudden are on the Forbes 400, at some point in time in the future, that industry rolls over. So that happened with hedge funds, and now it's technology. What's happening in technology is amazing, but it's also counterculture. And so a lot of what's happening in technology is going to drive growth of businesses. It already has for the past 10 years. It will for the next 10 and 20. And to the extent it's truly counterculture, valuing programmers is not the same thing as valuing the degree from a certain school. You know, Facebook and Amazon or Google are big businesses now. And if they want to hire a programmer, they're not paying a programmer a fortune. So it's a question of, does that just become the next line job? So you can look at it and say, it depends on what industries are driving growth. Now, the implicit thing I was saying is that there's going to be a rollover in technology at some point in time. And there was earlier in my career, you know, in 2000. And that, that's likely to happen, at least in the valuation of companies and the, and the access of capital to companies, which will cause some of the smaller ones to go away. I don't think that the education system is going to change overnight. And overnight for education is decades. It's, it's funny because p- people often ask me what I think of San Francisco. And I love visiting San Francisco. But what I say when I go there is it feels like the New York hedge fund industry in the 2000s. And, and again, it doesn't mean Google and data and social media. They're, they're, they're here to stay, the companies and the valuations. You know, there is this piece that I shared by Venkatesh Rao on it was called premium mediocre. But one of the arguments that he that he made was that millennials, so you know, folks in their late twenties, have significantly less upward economic mobility than Gen X's than Gen X's did at the at that time that point in their lives. What do you think of that statement? I think the only thing that's really hard to predict is the future. <laughs> Good answer. So, I mean, uh, it's. I would tie that statement to a statement about the economy and the structure of the economy, you know, today versus say 10 years ago. I don't know any stats about what what do jobs look like for graduates from college today and how different is that from 10 years ago, but that would be one signal. There's definitely been an increasing disparity in the haves and have-nots in our country, and that's a really troubling dynamic. That kind of statement is is an implicitly saying the economy is not going to be as strong. And we are all going to be replaced by machines. There are not going to be jobs. Some of that's happening. My 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 old boss Dave Swenson, who is just a remarkable and brilliant man, gave he doesn't speak publicly that much, but he gave a speech earlier this week. And one of the things he got asked about artificial intelligence, and one of the things he said is, "It's not often in my career that I'm glad that I'm." 63 and near the end of my career than near the beginning. But when he thinks about artificial intelligence, that is one lens where he's very glad that he's you know closer to the end of his career than the beginning. So I think that that is real. I don't know what it means. I've seen movies like iRobot over the years and all kinds of things that where the limit of it looks really scary. But I, I do think that's more likely to be the case than it was. But I also think that the U.S. 
in particular has time and again demonstrated a resilience in the economy and in growth that no other country has. And I can't tell you how that's going to play out. I can tell you it looks today like machines are going to replace lots of jobs and Maybe that will happen and that will become a problem. But if it does, we'll figure something else out. I think there's economic dynamism and human capital dynamism that I think individuals will be okay. There's going to be shakeouts, but but it's going to – that will never change that kind of human spirit, right? The human spirit is resilient to that. Well, this has been incredible. Where can our listeners go to learn more about what you're working on? What's exciting to you? Yeah, I've tried to encapsulate a lot of what I've done and what I'm doing in a website called capitalallocatorspodcast.com. All right. Anyone wants to listen, subscribe for the podcast, depending on who they are and what their background is, there might be some really, really interesting stuff and there might be some stuff that they find really, really boring. <laughs> I, I could say it's it's a it's a phenomenal podcast. Even stripping out the, the investment part of it, it's so rich with wisdom and, and great storytelling and, and, and a good host to boot. Appreciate it. Thank you, Ted. Thanks, Kay. Loved it. Now, as promised, I have some special guests today to ask me the closing questions. Who are you guys? Brian Seides. And you? Skylar Seides. And you? Eric Seides. Oh, yeah. So my three kids, Ryan Skylar, 12, Eric, or eight. Who's going to go first? Me. What is your favorite sports moment? I have two that I want to tell you about. No, 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 no. Only one. Only one? Okay, only one. Well, my very favorite sports moment came in 1978. I was eight years old, just like you. And the Yankees and Red Sox had a one-game playoff. Back then, only four teams made the Major League Baseball playoffs, two in the American League and two in the National League. The Yankees and Red Sox had tied for winning the American League East and had a one-game playoff. It was in Fenway Park in Boston, decided by a coin flip. The Red Sox were winning 2 nothing in the sixth, or I think it was the seventh inning. And we were all gathered in the den in the family room, our whole family, And my brother, Uncle David, said, I know what's going to happen. The next guy's going to get a hit, and the next guy's going to get a hit, and then the next guy's going to get a home run. And we started laughing because they were the bottom three guys in the order, and the third guy was Bucky Dent. And Bucky Dent never hit home runs, except that day, one guy got a hit, another one got a hit, Bucky Dent hit a home run, and the rest was history. Who's up next? All right, Ryan. What... What teaching from your parents most stayed with you? Well, my mom, your grandma Jane, used to always say, patience is a virtue. And it mostly stayed with me because she said it over and over again, and she only said it when she wasn't being very patient. But it was also kind of funny because I never knew what the other virtues were. I only knew that patience was a virtue. As I've gotten older... Patience comes about in lots of ways. So you, you have to be patient when life isn't going the way you want. You have to be patient in investing. Uh, you have to be patient with your children. So it's one of those things that stay with me for a long time. What information do you read that others might not know about? <laughs> yeah, I guess I ask this question of other people because I'm curious what those gems are. And it might be because I don't think I have any. But you know, I do read a lot of investment manager letters, some of which increasingly are available kind of publicly on the web through, through different blog posts. But I recognize that a lot of them aren't broadly available. So as a concept, you could probably count the number of books that we'll all read in our lives. 
and it's not a large number. So I've tried to read other people's book recommendations and only read books that I've seen come up repeatedly as highly recommended by different people uh, from diverse walks of life. All right, who's up next? Me. All right, your turn, Eric. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? The one that's come up that I really wish I knew earlier is that you can't do it on your own. I think growing up uh, and in the financial world and as a man really in our society, I had the notion that I had to figure things out on my own. And it's only in the last couple of years through some of the work I've done and talk about with the hero's journey that I came across the idea that you do things for yourself, but not by yourself. So I've made a concerted effort in the last couple of years to include some really important people in my life in all of my key decisions, both personally and professionally, to reach out for help when I don't have the answers. And it's had an incredibly positive impact on my life in the last couple of years. So it's certainly something I wish I knew uh, and had taken advantage of much earlier in my life. All right, Skylar, last question. You are 100 years old sitting in your rocking chair. What advice would you give yourself today? A big piece of advice is just to be present. Uh, It's so easy to be worrying about the things that aren't working well. And so to just be present with life, let things come as they do, and just believe deeply, which I do, that things will work out. All right, guys, any other questions you want to ask me? I got a great one. Go ahead, bud. On a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being worse, 10 being best, how would you rate chocolate? I would rate chocolate an 8, and I would rate dark chocolate a 9. Go ahead, Skylar. What's your favorite candy? My favorite candy is probably Skittles. What's your favorite Boston team, even though you're not a Boston fan? Oh, good question. You know, I grew up loving the Boston Celtics, so it would be the Boston Celtics. Thanks, guys. I love you so much. Hey, before you take off, I've started sending out a monthly email that shares a small selection of what caught my eye over the month. I get a lot of emails like this, and I'm sure you do too, so I'm only going to send no more than a handful of the very best things that caught my eye. If you'd like to receive that email, hop on my website at capitalallocatorspodcast.com and join the mailing list.